Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you for the great privilege of having your word, of sitting under it, Lord, of um, learning from it. And I ask, Lord, this morning that you would allow me to be your messenger, that I would be simply your mouthpiece, that you would allow our hearts to be humble and sensitive to you. And uh, Lord, would you grow us? Would you challenge us? Would you strengthen us, Lord, through our time together this morning? We ask in your name. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. So I want you to, this morning, begin by imagining that we are gathered together at a home Bible study, and someone has just read this passage of Scripture, and this is going to be the topic of the discussion. And so the leader asks uh, for people to share their thoughts on this passage, and so uh, Mrs. Smith quickly responds. She likes to be the first one to give her thoughts. And she says, what this passage means to me is that everyone should be baptized and that it should be done by immersion. And of course, not to be outdone, Mr. Jones jumps in and takes the opportunity next. And he adds his thoughts and he says, to me, this passage is teaching that we should all be baptized by the Holy Spirit. But, of course, Mrs. Goldsworthy is also there, and she wants to put her two cents in, and she says, um, what it means to me is that we should all consider the value of a balanced protein and carbohydrate diet, because that's what this passage is really talking about. Um, By the way, don't buy into that particular diet, okay? It probably wouldn't taste too good. But finally, uh, Mr. Hughes jumps in, and he's all excited having read this passage. And uh, he says, well, it's clear to me that, that what God is teaching me from this passage is that in order for me to really meet God, I need to get away from the busyness of my urban life and go out into the wild wilderness where I can truly commune with nature and connect with my God. Now, We could add to more and more nonsensical approaches to this passage, but this is often what happens when people sit around and they talk about the Bible. They pick one thing that seems to be a hobby horse for them or comes from their own kind of framework, and they read it into the passage and make it say far more than it says. And so this passage is not laying out for us baptism by immersion or the baptism of the Holy Spirit or even uh, this, this special carbohydrate and protein diet, thankfully. Um, and it's not even about finding God in the spiritual experience of the wilderness, but God does have a particular agenda. What we're looking at here is what he calls the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ the Son of God. Now, they are, um, these words are a revelation of how God, after 400 years of silence, breaks in to his people by, by virtue of bringing his Son, Jesus Christ, to the earth, ministering and going to a cross for the sake of their redemption. That's the point of this gospel. And so, friends, when we come to God's word, we always come with agendas, with arguments, with deep-rooted beliefs. And some are good, and some are not so good. Some are not so helpful. And we must always be careful that we don't taint our study of God's word 
with our own agendas and therefore only seeing what we want. We want to see God's agenda. We want to see God's argument. We want to see his revelation. And Mark, in writing this gospel, if you remember, if you were here last week or, or if you studied Mark before, you recognize that the first half of Mark's gospel really is emphasizing who Jesus really is. And the last part of Mark's gospel is really emphasizing what he has come to do. Now, there, there's, there's some, some crossover there, but primarily that's the focus of this gospel. And it's helpful for us in understanding that to even consider when this this gospel was written. Mark is, we understand, to be the first gospel ever written. Now you have to think through this a little bit. We're so familiar with the gospels that we, we tend to kind of, kind of you know, mesh them all together. But Mark is writing this first account of Jesus Christ. And you can just think about you know, God in heaven thinking through what he was going to do and how he was going to breathe out his word. And he breathes it out now through Mark. And he has a purpose. He has a reason in communicating this very first genre of literature, a gospel. It wasn't even called that until the second century. This is the good news about Jesus Christ. Christ, and this was written somewhere between 64 and 70 A.D., and it's written to primarily a Roman context, and that comes from understanding the text. There are places in Mark where Mark takes an aside to explain Jewish practices for his readers so that they can understand why this is going on. There are some words that are used in Mark's gospel that are, that are Latin words connecting with the people that are, that are the audience here. And something was happening in Rome at that particular point in time, from AD 60 to 70. You might remember there was this emperor, and his name was Nero. And Nero was actually not a bad emperor to begin with. He had a lot of good things going. But, but toward the, the, after about five or six years of his reign, things started to turn upside down. The people started to turn against him. And as a result of him putting sanctions on people, part of the sanction was to have their, their homes burned. And as a result of that, the city catches fire. And I think something like, like two-thirds of the city gets burned down. And, and everyone's looking at Nero. Everyone's wanting to blame Nero. And so Nero has to find a scapegoat. He has to find someone to blame for all that is happening. And he turns to this religious, fanatical group who worship this foreign god, these Christians. And he begins to persecute them. He begins to blame them. And, and they end up being taken, either thrown into the fire or thrown into the Colosseum. Of course, if you go to Rome today, you'll still see the, the, the remains of the Colosseum. It's still there. And these Christians were used as sport in the arena, being chased by all these animals to kill them. And so Nero, by virtue of doing that, restored some civility to himself, at least, by blaming the Christians. So the context here is that Mark is writing this gospel account to Christians in Rome who are facing and enduring all sorts of suffering. And what is it that they need? Who is it that they need to remember? 
What is it that's going to help them during that time? Well, it's this good news. And so he's writing to encourage Jew and Gentile believers who are facing and enduring this kind of suffering at the hands of this this crazed Roman emperor. But he's also writing this as an evangelistic letter. It's not just to encourage the people, but by virtue of this gospel, the news of Jesus is now going to spread and what's, what's really helpful for us and important for us to recognize is although there are four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, Mark being the first, the others lean on Mark for a lot of their accounts, but the others also add to what Mark has to say with some detail. We'll find out today. But Mark's purpose wasn't always to give the detail. Mark's purpose was to give a quick, short, passionate account of who Jesus is and why he came. And we want to make sure that as we study it, and this is one of the things that can happen when you're studying one of the Gospels, is there's a tendency to want to kind of just pull in from all the other Gospels to get a fuller understanding, rather than just simply letting that Gospel speak in the way that God intended it to be heard. And so here, we want to, we want to take our time through these verses, which the other Gospels give far more weight to and time to, and detail about, but we want to let them speak in the context of what Mark is seeking to accomplish here. What did, the, what did the word good news mean to a Roman audience? The expression good news or euangelion was a, a word uniquely attributed to the birth of an emperor or an emperor officially taking his, uh, his seat, his ascension to that emperorship. To, to step up onto that throne. And the good news was spread abro- abroad, and there was great celebration in the, in the whole of that realm. That's what, how the, the Romans understood this particular word. In fact, Augustus Caesar, uh, during the time of his, uh, his birth, uh, there was a, you can still find today a pillar, and on it says, the beginning of the good news. So it's interesting how Mark then takes this theme and this idea that these people would understand to say the beginning of the gospel or the good news of Jesus Christ. It's no small statement. He's saying, yeah, there's Caesar and there are Caesars, but there is one. And this is the good news about him, Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And then to a Jewish audience, the idea of good news flows out of the Old Testament. Listen to Isaiah chapter 52, and I'm going to read verses 5 and 7. Isaiah 52. Now therefore, what have I here, declares the Lord, seeing that my people are taken away for nothing? Their rulers wail, declares the Lord, and continually all day my name is despised. Therefore, my people shall know my name. Therefore, in that day, they shall know that it is I who speak. Here I am. How beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him who brings what? Good news. Who publishes peace. Who who brings good news of happiness. Who publishes salvation. Who says to Zion, your God reigns. So the, the, the Jews were anticipating a Messiah, and the coming of the Messiah was good news. 
The Roman audience, they recognized this idea of, of good news was, was referencing this, this, this leader, this Caesar. And so Mark is using this and bringing them together as the, the body of Christ, as believers, followers of Jesus Christ to say, here is the, the story of the good news of Jesus Christ, the very Son of God. And of course, the name Jesus is... Um, is a, word, is a name, his, his human name, his given name, um, and it means the Lord is salvation. Of course, that, 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 that name is packed then with theological and gospel meaning. It anticipates what Jesus has come to do. Of course, the, the word, the title Christ is the Greek equivalent of Old Testament Messiah. So packed in here is Jesus Christ. You know, some people say, you know, Jesus is his first name, Christ is his last name. No, 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 no. Jesus and title, Christ. He is the king, Jesus the king, the Messiah, the one that everyone has been longing and hoping for. Now, throughout the Old Testament, as far as the Jews are concerned, there are lots of key important leaders. Abraham, Moses, Joshua, David, Elijah, Isaiah. But none of these great leaders were the answer to Israel's longing. What they needed and who they needed was a king, a servant, a savior, and a deliverer. And as we come now to this text, it really unfolds in three sections. There's a first section which would be talking about his preparation. Secondly, uh, emphasizes his baptism. And then um, Mark transitions just quickly and goes into his temptation. And so in doing that, what, what Mark is seeking to do, and how I want to present is this, he, he's giving his readers, and he's giving us three compelling reasons why Mark's gospel is worth listening to or worth reading. Now, usually at the beginning of a book, what do you want to do? If you're involved in literature, you're, you, want to, you want to hook people in, Right? You want to let people know what this is about, but you also want to, you want to make it in such a way that they're going to stay, they're going to read. And the other Gospels do that too. That's what John does, right? In the beginning. All right? Um, here, Mark does the same thing. It's, it's, like, it's like that prologue, and he, he takes these 13 verses in particular, and he says, I want to present to you why this Gospel matters to you. So this morning, that's how we're going to look at it. Why is this gospel so important? Three compelling reasons why Mark's gospel is worth listening to. First of all, simply stated, Jesus is the one the prophets foretold. Now, the first number of verses through verse 8 really emphasize this, but it it unfolds um, purposely here uh, from the pen of Mark. Now, remember the overview we gave of of, of the whole Bible last couple of weeks, where we say in, in the Old Testament, Jesus is predicted. In the Gospels, Jesus is revealed. In the Acts of the Apostles, Jesus is preached. In the Epistles, Jesus is explained. And in the book of Revelation, Jesus is expected. If we think along those lines, that in the Old Testament, Jesus is predicted, that is what Mark is seeking to show us, that the Jesus that he's presenting is the Jesus that is predicted in the Old Testament. He's connecting the dots between the Messiah and the Old Testament and this Jesus that he now is presenting as the Son of God. And so Jesus here, 
and him presenting him is not canceling out the Old Testament, but he's showing how this fulfills the Old Testament. Now, it might strike you as a little bit odd that Mark says that he's quoting Isaiah the prophet when that's not all he's quoting. He's actually quoting two other passages in seed form. One of them would be um, Exodus 23.20, where uh, he identifies... um, this, this one, this messenger and this voice. And in Malachi, the emphasis in Malachi, um, we're going to find, um, is, is a little different. It's, it's talking there about this, this messenger that was going to come before um, the coming of the Messiah to prepare the way. Um, but what's happening here is this, that, that, that these, these passages are all being blended together for a reason. There's a sense in which these two passages, along with Isaiah will actually um, explain and fashion and shape. And so uh, understanding Isaiah is much, much easier with the actual quoting of these two particular passages. They give feet to the theme of God's voice preparing the way of the Lord. And so here we have, first of all, a minor prophet, and that would be Malachi. He's not, he's not Malachi, okay? He's not the Italian dude, um, but he is Malachi. And like, as I said, he, he, he promised... God promised through Malachi that he would send a messenger to the people before the coming of his Messiah. And so Mark is saying, in quoting this, that this has already taken place. Now, the the, the prophecy here specifically is about the one who is coming to prepare the way. But the purpose of the one who's coming to prepare the way is to prepare the way for whom? The Lord. So this ultimately is a prophecy about Jesus, right? So you go, that's, that's the minor prophet, that's Malachi. Secondly, you have the major prophet, which would be Isaiah. Isaiah 43 gives us this further description of this messenger, identifying him as a voice in the desert. His message would be to prepare for the coming of the Lord. And it's important then to recognize that what Mark is presenting here in Jesus is not an afterthought on God's part. It's not like God is trying to correct the messes that took place in his creation and somehow he's, he's a God who sits up there and every once in a while comes up and says, no, I think I'm going to move this person here, move this person here, move this person here. No, no, no. God is constantly aware and purposeful in all that he does. Let me put it to you this way. John and Jesus don't appear out of the blue, but out of the blueprint of God's plan. A plan that was established before the world was even created. And now, we're told, I think uh, in verse 14 and 15, the time had come for God to work. So after centuries of silence, God sends another prophet, a contemporary prophet by the name of John, to be the voice bringing this message. So you see, you see how this kind of, this biblical theology or this truth from the Old Testament kind of jumps then from, from Isaiah to Malachi, then into the, the New Testament, although we're actually still in an Old Testament era because the cross has not taken place yet. And so we have John the Baptist who is considered then the last of the Old Testament prophets. He's still speaking as a prophet. He's foretelling to the people in front of him. He's speaking a message to them, but he's also foretelling. He's speaking about what is yet to happen in the future. So let's just consider John's, John's ministry. 
It says, verse 4, John appeared, baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sin. And all the country of Judea and Jerusalem were going out to him and were being baptized by him in the river, confessing uh, their sins. People began to hear that John was in the wilderness. And, and they came out, and they, they, were, they were hungry to hear what he had to say. And there was a, there was a, a sense of, 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 of confession and, and repentance in their hearts, and, and people were coming out in droves. Some historians estimate that, that almost 30,000 people were coming out to him. So it's not just that John, John the Baptist wasn't like baptizing all of them. I'm sure he had his, his workers and disciples that were helping him. The point was, if, if the historians are, are, are right, even if they're marginally right, this was a huge revival for the people of Israel. And they were coming and being baptized and repenting and confessing their sin. And they, through the, the waters of baptism, they were simply simply symbolically going back to the beginning of that relationship with God. See, they had, been, they had been under God's judgment. They had broken covenant with God, and as a result of that, there's silence. Listen, when God is silent, um, it's not a great place to be at all. But God breaks in here, and he great, breaks in with, with power, we'll see in just a little bit. So a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sin was to acknowledge sin and, and, the, and through forgiveness be restored to fellowship with God. Now, I want to put some things in perspective. 400 years of silence. The pilgrims landed on Plymouth Rock in 1620. Just shy of four years of being 400 years. How much has changed in the history of the United States in that time? Now you recognize that the history of America is pretty, pretty young compared to the rest of the world. But I mean, the, the United States has changed considerably. 400 years might seem a, a small time, but it's actually a long time. Lots can change, and lots can change religiously. And lots did change under the economy of the Old Testament because when Jesus comes on the scene and he's challenging the religious leaders, those religious leaders didn't just go up one day and say, you know what, I think we're going to do this. We're going to add a whole bunch of rules. This, this happened, this drift away from, from focusing on and humbling themselves before the God of the Old Testament began during that 400-year period, but slowly over time got worse and worse and worse and worse. And Jesus now comes into that context. And so when John is coming preaching, people are, are realizing, ah, we have been rebellious. We have been sinful. We want to restore our relationship to God. Now understand, this is still Old Testament economy. There's a cleansing going on. But even what John here is doing is insufficient. And there's a need for a Messiah who will do far more than simply walk you through a baptism. Now I want you to think then about John's manner. You notice in verse 6, now John was clothed with camel's hair. Again, not something I would recommend that you adorn yourself with. Um, and wore a leather belt around his waist and ate locusts and wild 
honey. Now, my understanding is in those days that one of the signs of, of kind of prestige, you know, the, the, you, you hear in, in particular in, in, in Hellenistic culture that the, the woman's glory was her hair, right? And they would put, this is where they would put their jewels and different things in their hair as they had it up. And, um, but with, with men, the belt was a sign of prestige. And so a, a person who had, a, um, had, had wealth would actually adorn and show that wealth by virtue of the kind of belt that they had. Just wrapped everything together, but it showed um, you know, just, just how, how important they were. And so the point here is that John is, is basically, he's just got a leather belt. He's just a, he's just a simple um, wilderness dweller, so to speak. He's living off the land. He's eating this, this, this locust and the wild honey. And of course, all of this is a flashback to a prophet of Israel by the name of Elijah. You can read about him in 2 Kings 1.8, where he's identified as wearing a garment of hair with a belt of leather about his waist, and he preached powerful messages confronting people with their sin. But here, John the Baptist is saying, hey, listen, the emphasis is not on me. I know what I'm here to do. You see that throughout. He might preach a hard message, and you see that in the other Gospels. But you also recognize that John knew his place. He was a forerunner. He was preparing the way for the Lord. And there's something important, even for me as a pastor, to remember by his example. He's saying, hey, guys. He's not saying, guys, look at me. I'm a great and important preacher with a great and important message. He's saying something more like this. Hey, guys, don't look at me. I have a great and important message, to be sure, but I am just a humble and unworthy servant come to proclaim the message of repentance and forgiveness of sins, as well as to prepare for the way, uh, the way for the Lord. And so we, we see his manner and his ministry taking place, but ultimately in verse 7 we see his message. This is where he was going. This is what he's driving at. And his message ultimately, friends, was to point to Jesus. Through all of his preaching, through all of the baptisms that he's doing, he's seeking to prepare these people. There's a message of humility. Notice it says, and he preached, saying, After me comes he who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandals I'm not worthy to stoop down and untie. In other words, I'm not even worthy to do what slaves were not responsible to do for their masters. There's lots of things that slaves were supposed to do for their masters, but one of the things that typically was, was left was the untying of their buckle. And he's saying, I'm not even worthy to do that. So it's a statement of, of total humility. I'm just a humble messenger. I'm just here to prepare the way for that one who is mightier than me. But it's also a message of change. He says, I have baptized you with water, which he had. There's a cleansing, there's a symbolic cleansing to get back to where you once were with God. But he says here, Jesus, he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. And that's a huge change. One is external, the other one is internal. And so even the message that he was preaching to Jerusalem at that time, and people were coming to, to be baptized, was still insufficient because it didn't include a Messiah who suffered on a cross and paid for their sin. 
But now he comes proclaiming this message pointing to Jesus himself. And the emphasis here isn't on the form of baptism, but on the one who is doing the baptizing. Now this is not necessarily what our culture likes to hear. You know, imagine a a group of people, a committee together, who are looking for a speaker for a citywide kind of event. And they're they're looking at the stack of people that they could invite, and and, and they they pull one one sheet off the top, and the person who's chairing the meeting looks looks over it and says to the group, here's an interesting one. It's a, 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 a Reverend John T. Baptist. Has anyone heard of him before? And one of the, the ladies there around the table says, you know what, I, I, think, I think my sister's church had him in to speak, and she said she didn't like him. And he said, well, why? Well, she says, I remember her talking about it quite vividly. She said, he was rather hairy, his clothes were dirty, he ate strange foods, and all he spoke about was our sin and the need for repentance because of the coming judgment. Oh, well, we don't want him then, for sure. Um, Does anyone else have any other ideas? They pulled another one off. Well, how about this one? It says on the top here, how to become all things to all men in this awesome world. Of course, all their eyes lit up. Oh, it's by a man even who says he used to work with the Apostle Paul. Oh, he's got good connections here. Sounds great. What's his name? Reverend Demas. Let's get him! Now the point here I'm making is Demas, if you remember, is the one that left Paul because he loved this present world. One of the things we've got to be mindful of here is that we might actually prefer a message that is void of confronting people with their sin and, and dealing with things like repentance and holiness. But friends, that's what we need. We can't soft pedal the truth. And, and John the Baptist is just an example of someone who just comes and he is coming as a result of Old Testament prophecy preparing the way of the Lord, but he comes powerfully with a message pointing to Jesus being the need of the day. So, Jesus is the, is the one the prophets foretold. Secondly, Jesus is the, the one the Godhead approves. Here we are at the baptism of Jesus. Mark transitions now from John the Baptist to John the Baptist being involved now in the baptism of Jesus and all the events that take place there. What we see here then is the triune God, the Trinity, the Godhead gathered and united together to inaugurate the ministry of Jesus, the Son of God. And so in verse 9, in those days Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And it's helpful to remember that although Mark chooses to start his gospel with the beginning of Jesus' ministry, um, there were 30 silent years before Jesus comes on the scene. But there were 30 years of preparation. But his baptism brought this process to to a, a preparation climax. Now, what's the significance of Jesus being baptized? of his baptism. Uh, You might think, if Jesus is the sinless son of God, why does he need to go through the waters of baptism? It's a a legitimate question, and I'm sure it's one that as you read through, it's like, okay, I've I've wondered about that. 
Let's think through this. And, and I think I have three answers to that question. They all begin with I, but the first one is probably the more immediate direct one. Uh, the last two are, are indirect about the events that are taking place on that day. But the first thing I think is helpful for us to recognize here is that through baptism, Jesus was identifying with mankind. You see, the people came to John repenting, confessing of their sins, and they were baptized. The, the, the baptism didn't in and of itself um, save them or, or, or change them. It was symbolic of washing the pollution of their sin away with the waters of that baptism. And so all their, uh, all their, their lying and their lust, their anger, their hatred, their bitterness, their, their, their stealing, their rebellion, all of that is symbolically washed away. But you have to get this picture here is Jesus is standing in line with this, this horde of people all waiting to be baptized. He is stepping into the place where, where mankind is. He stands in line with them, and he waits, and he enters himself into the waters of baptism. Now, the other Gospels talk about you know, John saying, no, I, I have no place baptizing you, and Jesus says, no, you need to do this. And there's a reason, because Jesus wants to identify with us. The holy, sinless Son of God took his place with us. He stands among sinners. He now enters the same waters where the symbolically polluted and contaminated waters now wash over his sinless and holy body. And friends, there's, there's a foreshadowing going on here. This is not just about the baptism. It's also pointing to something else. And I want you to think about this. Like Moses, who gave up his regal uh, status to identify with his own people in order to deliver him, so Jesus humbles himself by entering the ranks of sinners, taking his stand with them. And so this was, this was a statement of identity. This is a statement then uh, of, of, of Jesus saying, I have come to be with sinners and to place myself among the guilty. Now, not for his own salvation, but for ours. Not because of his own guilt, because he had none, but for ours. And not because he feared the wrath to come, but for, uh, in order to save us from that wrath. And so his baptism then foreshadowed what would take place on the cross. That's the first thing. And just think about this. Jesus wants to demonstrate to us that he identifies with us. Secondly, inauguration. And this is where the rest of the Godhead come into play. This was the inauguration of the King of Kings. Now, unlike Matthew and Luke, who begin with the birth of Jesus, Mark begins now with the baptism of Jesus. In Mark's thinking, the Emmanuel, the God with us, breaks forth now. Certainly, Jesus has come in the flesh. He is, he is in the form of man. But now, his official ministry is beginning. This is a time to celebrate. This is a time to mark. What we see here on the part of Jesus then is full 
obedience. Verse 10, and when he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open. So according to the plan of the Godhead, having identified himself with the people, Jesus now comes out of the water just as his baptism is a foreshadowing of his death, so his baptism is a foreshadowing of his obedience in not just going to the cross, but even his, his inauguration for his obedience to journey to the cross. It was a journey of obedience. He knew what he had come to do. And he was going to be obedient now to do what he had been called to do by the Godhead. And that's why uh, we, we see as, as he looks up in the sky, the heavens literally are torn open. They are <clears throat> being torn open. All heaven is breaking loose. It's announcing that something that is happening here is worth watching, is worth seeing, is worth taking note of. This is the beginning of his ministry on the earth. This is the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And there's an echo of Isaiah 64 and verse 1 that longingly pleads this way, Oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down, that the mountains might quake at your presence. I'm just reading through that, I'm just thinking, hmm, didn't we hear something like that at the end of 2 Samuel where David is actually giving a song and he's talking about someone coming down and the result of that is going to be blessing on the people? This is the same one he's talking about. So there's this full obedience of the Son. There's also this full anointing of the Spirit. Verse 10, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. And of course the dove is, is often a, a symbol of peace, but it's also a symbol of, of purity. It's a symbol of, of gentleness, but this dove descends now. A dove is, is white and of course gives that picture of the words that are described uh, for it, but it's also its nature to keep itself clean. Now, why did the Spirit of God descend on Jesus? When, when Jesus became a man, he did not lose any of his divinity. Um, he was completely God in every way. Now, certainly, uh, we understand from Scripture that he willfully set aside the, the free exercise of some of his divine attributes. That would only make sense. But he didn't, he didn't lose anything. Um, but what we find is that in his humanity, there were two things taking place. First of all, he was being anointed for service. If you were to read the, the book of Hebrews, you'll find out one of the, the arguments that the writer of Hebrews is making is that there's only one son who will qualify to be um, this, th this Messiah. There's only one Savior who will qualify to be this Messiah. There's only one servant who will qualify, and that servant, that son, that Savior is Jesus. And so here, the Holy Spirit is anointing him, saying, you are the one. You're being commissioned now for ministry, and that's the second one. He's being empowered for ministry. The same spirit that brooded over the, the face of the waters at the beginning of creation appears again to now enter the Messiah. And what we see is only a reflection of what God has already revealed in Isaiah the prophet. And just think about these two passages, Isaiah 11 and verse 2. This is what it says, and the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him. 
the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge uh, and the fear of the Lord. These are all pointing to Jesus Christ, Son of God. And the echo again happens in Isaiah chapter 61 in verses 1 through 3. The spirit of the Lord God is upon me. And this, of course, is from the perspective of the Messiah himself speaking. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of the prison to those who are bound and so on and so on. This is the Spirit of the Lord coming and empowering him and enabling him by virtue of his office, by virtue of his role for the ministry that he's been called to. And of course, Jesus, this is the passage that he turns to when he goes into the synagogues early in his ministry. And he starts reading and says, this has been fulfilled. He's saying, I'm the one this is talking about. So with the Spirit's anointing and the heavens being ripped apart, it was clear that something new was beginning. The Messiah is here. He has come. And then we have the full approval of the Father, the obedience of the Son, the anointing of the Spirit, the full approval of the Father. Now, verse 11, and a voice came from heaven, you are my beloved Son, with you I am well pleased. Why was the Father pleased? Well, two things just to note here. Number one would be because of what had already taken place. The Son's humble entrance into the world his consistent life as a, as a humble carpenter for 30 years. As Luke chapter 2, verse 52 tells us, that he increased in wisdom and stature in favor with God and, uh, and of man. But also about what will still take place. Isaiah 53, verse 10 reminds us of what yet is to take place. But the Lord was pleased to crush him, putting him to grief. So he's saying, this is my son, in whom I am well pleased. It's looking back, but it's also looking forward. It's looking back about what has taken place. It's looking forward to what will take place. And he is satisfied that what is taking place is a reflection of his heart, of the Godhead's purpose. So there's this inaugural aspect of what's taking place at the baptism. But there's a third thing here, and it's, it's all by the statement that we just read, you are my beloved son, with you I am well pleased. And it's, it's interpretation. The father's voice helps to interpret who this son is, who this Jesus is. And there are two passages, Psalm 2 and Isaiah 42, that are drawn in here in this statement. You are my beloved son. With you, I am well pleased. And of course, Psalm 2, we know, is a messianic psalm. It's that one where the the heathens are raging, they're rebelling against God, and God says, hey, listen, there is this one who is my son. He is the king Verse, uh, verse 7 in particular, he says, I will tell of the decree the Lord said to me, you are my son, today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage, the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like the potter's vessel. Now therefore, O kings, these are the ones who've rebelled against him, be wise, be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the Son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. 
So you have a choice in this psalm. As a rebellious person against God, you have a choice to come and to kiss the Son, to bow down, to worship the Son, to repent, to, 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 to make amends with Him. And if you don't, you will see His wrath. And the other thing you can do is to take refuge in Him. And if you do that, you'll be blessed. I see he's, he's presenting now Jesus not just as a son, but as the son, as the promised son, as the son that is foretold in the Old Testament but that he is now approving. And so Isaiah 42, verse 1, Behold my servant whom I uphold, my chosen in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit on him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. All these things, are all, they're all interwoven together, aren't they? I mean, just the language that's being used here. The Father is declaring that Jesus is this one that Isaiah prophesied. And by the way, if you've never read Isaiah, reading Isaiah will help you understand Jesus and understand how Isaiah's quotations that are in the New Testament are pointing to Jesus ultimately. And so when we read this, when he says, behold my servant whom I uphold, this, this servant language is code for he is going to suffer. And that's Isaiah 42. And that, that pushes all the way to Isaiah 53 where we see the servant suffering in his greatest form. And he's doing that for the people. So put together we can say that the Father is revealing to us or interpreting for us that Jesus is his beloved son who will suffer as his servant. So this expression, son of God, you'll see it throughout Mark. He is uniquely the son of God. He is unique in his deity. He is unique in his role. He's identified at the baptism. He's identified later in chapter 9 at the transfiguration as the son of God. At his trial, he's challenged and questioned about being the son of God. And of course, at his crucifixion, a Roman centurion, understand the background now of who this is written to, declares, surely this man was the son of God. And a Roman testimony of a centurion to a Roman context carries weight. Now I'm sure that as you look through this, and I mentioned it already, you see how the Trinity is all at work here in the baptism of Jesus. And I think it's, it's worth us noticing how powerfully the Godhead is at work for our redemption. Now, friends, there, there's, there's a lot we can say about this text. There's, there's, there's more that we could squeeze out of it. But, but Mark's purpose is to give direction, swiftly move us to establish, hey, listen, he is worth listening to. He is worth paying attention to. So we want to just move a little bit now into verses 12 and 13, where we see that Jesus is not only the one um, who the prophets foretold or that the Godhead approves, but he is also the one the devil tempted. The Spirit immediately drove him out into the wilderness. And he was in the wilderness 40 days, being tempted by Satan. He was with the wild animals, and the angels were ministering to him. And notice, first of all, the temptation. I think you would agree with me. When God is pleased, you can be sure 
but Satan is not. And he's always trying to undermine what God is seeking to do. Not that he ever will. <laughs> but he's always trying to, to, to stick his nose in and to cause God's children to fall. But I want you to notice, it isn't Satan that is luring Jesus into the wilderness to be tempted. It is the Holy Spirit that is driving Jesus into the wilderness. In other words, all right, you have been inaugurated. You have been commissioned. Now, here's your first test. And you're going to face your hardest test. Because you're going to go and be tempted directly by Satan. You're going to go out for 40 days, no food, and he's going to throw all he can at you. Now, again, we're not giving all the, all the details. The other Gospels give us more details and give more perspective there. And certainly we need to recognize that the, the, the three-fold temptation, lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes, the pride of life, that is all important. But if we're staying with Mark here, we recognize that Mark is seeking to emphasize the fact that Jesus faced temptation. And not only did he face temptation, but he came through that temptation. He was faithful. He was obedient in the midst of that temptation. And he was submitting himself to the Godhead because the Holy Spirit's sending him out. He goes out there. He faces the temptation. He is successful in enduring that temptation. And this is all really important for his readers here to hear about. And how do we know that? Well, notice what it says here. Secondly, about not only the temptation, but he mentions the wild animals and the angels. Now, a lot of people have wondered, you know, scratch their heads. Why is he mentioning here, and Jesus was with the wild animals, and the angels were ministering to him? Is he saying that, you know, that, that this is now somehow a, a, a prefiguring of, of that time when, when the kingdom has been reestablished and the lion will lie down with the lamb? Is it simply saying that Jesus, you know, had wild beasts while he was in the, in the wilderness? And certainly there were wild beasts in the wilderness, and I think the answer to that would be yes to some degree. But what is he saying here? He's writing this gospel to a people, many of whom have had friends thrown into the arena who have been chased down by wild beasts and animals. But even in that trial, even in that suffering, the presence of God, even by virtue of his angels, is there to encourage and to strengthen those who are suffering. Now, in Jesus' context, Jesus didn't face the temptations by virtue of the angels doing stuff, but they're there after he faced the temptation, and he proved himself to be worthy. They come and minister to him. But it's a helpful reminder to those who are going through suffering, those who are going through trials, in particular like this, that Jesus also faced similar kinds of trials. These people needed to know in their context that this gospel about Jesus relates directly to them. Not only is he the one who was prophesied or the one who was approved by the Godhead, but he is the one who faced temptation. And he came through victorious, but he came through also as a champion. Because Jesus faced this, and we can, with the same tools, help face it. And Jesus, we're told from the other Gospels, of course, we know that he faced it with the Word of God and God's people can still do the same thing. And so this, this word, this instruction, this, this counsel, this guidance, encouraged and comforted and strengthened these people for what was to lie ahead. For, they might find themselves chained 
and, and on their way to the suffering that many had gone through in the Colosseum. And what they needed to remind, be reminded of is that even though they might face the jaws of a lion, they served a faithful God and there's something bigger than their moment and their trial because God is sovereign and he is supreme and Jesus had gone before them. Now notice, all of this is preparation for verse 14. Now after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee, what? Proclaiming the gospel of what? Of God. <laughs> See, this is, this is God's good news. And saying the time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. So with, with the preparation with the prophets, with, with the, the, the baptism, with the temptation. All of this is Mark's way of saying, listen, he is worthy to be, to be watched, to be listened to, 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 to read, to study. So press on, because I'm writing this for you. I'm writing this so that you will know who he is. I'm writing this so you'll know why he came. And so with that, let me give you just four concluding thoughts, and I'll be brief somewhat. Number one, again, this flows from the text, but I think this is another way to put it. Uh, what he's saying is wake up. That's what he was saying to the people, to his audience, wake up. This is why Jesus came. He came, he came to a group of people. The only reason they were prepared is because John the Baptist came to prepare them for the coming of Jesus. And it's easy for us to kind of get into our routine, into our, into our uh, Christian slumber, so to speak, and get our routine down and kind of do the Christian things and, and actually forget about the important reality of who this Jesus really is and why he came and what that means for us. So where have you wandered away from God? How have you ignored his counsel? How have you allowed yourself to be doing something that is sinful, but believing in your heart now that it is okay with God when it's not? And what we need is we need a John the Baptist to wake us up and to remind us, you know what? Jesus is here. And we need to take him seriously. We need to learn about who he is and remind ourselves of that reality. Secondly, get ready. Are you prepared for the coming of the Lord? Now, he has already come. That's what Mark is talking about. But he is coming again. And when he comes again, he wants to find his church active, diligent, ready, awake, aware. So what do you need to do to, to listen to the voice of this one crying in the wilderness? Well, see Jesus for who he really is. Listen to the voice of God coming in the wilderness in your life. Wherever you are, however you've wandered, whatever struggles you may have, are you listening for God to speak? Then humbly apply what is being said to your life. And then pray. Pray for change. Pray for growth in godliness Pray for the health of God's church. So, so see, listen, apply, pray are all ways that we can get ready. It's just encouraging, as you're reading this gospel, as you're coming along this journey, these are things that I think would be helpful for us to do. Number three, 
be amazed. Be amazed. I say, why, why do you say be amazed? The reason I say be amazed is because throughout this gospel, how do the people respond? Wow! That's the California version of be amazed. Or dude, right? In other words, when they see Jesus on display, they are amazed that he is far more than they thought he was. Now, friends, can I challenge you here? This Jesus that you believe in, in all likelihood, is far more than you actually think he is. So don't just settle on the, a few things that you picked up along the way. This is who Jesus is. I've got it all covered. No. Be amazed. And be ready to be amazed at who he is. And finally, that, that leads us to the place where we repent and we believe the gospel. My friends, this gospel for us, this journey for us is going to be wonderful. Not because I'm preaching it, but because God breathed it out. We want to let it speak. We want to let it shape us. We want to let it challenge us. And we want to come to the place where we see Jesus Christ for who he is. And that we are in awe of what he has done. But that would push us then to live like he wants us to live. Not in our own way, but in his way. Reflecting and living out this new life that we have in Christ where he's placed us for his glory. Would help us today to, to ponder the realities of this passage, to, to, to see what Mark is seeking to get at for us individually. That we would value this gospel that we have in our hands contained in, in this Bible. Mark's gospel, or how powerful, how riveting, how blessed it is for us to listen to it, to read it, to hear it, to learn from it, to be changed because of it. Lord, we give ourselves to you. Give us a determination. Give us a, a vigor, not just to simply come and, and hear, but to, to be hungry for. Because you have been let loose in the lives of those that you've called to yourself. You've been let loose to, to, to be lived through us in this context, a pagan context, a context that, that doesn't like Christians, where there will be suffering, there will be hardship. Although we, we need to be reminded, Lord, of, of what you say, what you declare in this book. In your name, we ask these things. Amen.